this podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews with the symposia guests. Welcome to another episode of the New England Law Review podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Once again, this is Brian Edmonds, the current online editor of the New England Law Review, and I'm going to be your host for today's episode. Uh, Joining me today is another person who I think requires no introduction here at the New England Law Boston uh, School of Law. He is an educator, a scholar, and a pillar of our community. For many of the students here, he is someone that they get to know if they're lucky enough to have him as their professor for wills, estates, and trusts. I myself was one lucky student, and I really enjoyed that class. So please join me in welcoming Professor Kent Schenkel to the podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. I'm really happy to have the opportunity to discuss my work here, and thanks to you and to the New England Law Law Review. Professor, on our behalf, let me thank you for taking some time to sit down with us. And uh, before we dive into some of your recent research, do you think you could give our listeners just a a brief summary of your background and how you came to teach at New England Law Boston? Sure. Um, I was in law school. I went to, I grew up in Florida, so I went to law school in Florida. And while I was in law school, I became interested in trust and estates and and, an estate planning practice because um, it just seemed to me to be something that had an appeal um, because of its creative component and because of the fact that you could um, take various areas of the law and kind of bring them together and do something creative uh, for your client. Um, and one of the areas of law that I, I thought was really interesting that you could use in, in trust and estates and in estate planning was tax. So when I graduated law school, I went and got an LLM in taxation. Um, and then I took a job in Tampa and I spent about six years in Tampa uh, working for a couple of different larger firms there. Um, after that, I moved to North Carolina where I had an opportunity to teach at a university there. Um, I taught business law and I taught in a, uh, an accounting graduate program. I taught uh, gift and estate tax in that. I also opened up my own practice at that time and my practice focused almost exclusively on estate planning and estate administration. And after about 12 years um, practicing in North Carolina, I had an opportunity to teach at what was then New England School of Law, now New England Law Boston. Um, And so, although it was one of the bigger decisions that I ever made, and it was a difficult decision, um, I have to say that it was definitely the right decision for me because I really love teaching um, I love uh, thinking about how the law works and, and probably more importantly, how the law should work. And, and that's where I get to uh, exercise my curiosity and, and my, my sense of um, which the, whether or not the directions that the law is going are, are good or bad. And, um, and so I really, really enjoy it. Well, and I, I can say this, Professor, having, having taken your wills, estates, and trust class, you truly are an excellent professor who makes the material speak to students in a way that they can understand it. And to any of our listeners who are either current students here or considering attending New England Law Boston, when it comes time to take wills, estates, and trusts, please, please consider taking Professor Schenkel's class. And my understanding is that you're currently working on a major research project that looks into the law of trusts specifically. Do you think you could tell our listeners who might be unfamiliar with that concept briefly what a trust is and how it fits into uh, the law of wills, estates, and trusts? 
Sure. Uh, a trust has been described as a, a gift that is projected on a plane of time and is subjected to a management scheme. And the way it works is that if the gift giver wants to give somebody a gift, but wants to have that gift managed and controlled over a period of time, then they make the transfer not directly to the beneficiary, but, but to a manager. And we call the manager the trustee. So, so the gift giver is called a settler, the settler of the trust. That's the person who transfers the property to the trust and creates the trust. And the settler gives the property to a manager, and that's the trustee. And the recipient of the gift, the person who the gift is going to benefit, is the gift's beneficiary. So, for example, if I want to make a gift to a child, and I know that that child, um, this is, say, money and other property, maybe some investments, and I know that that child is not going to be able to handle that gift uh, on his or her own, then I would make that gift to a trustee and make that gift in trust. And maybe I would provide that the trustee is to manage that gift and to uh, make distributions to or for the benefit of that child uh, for things like health or education. Um, and then at some point when, um, when you know, I think that probably the child will, who's now maybe an adult will be uh, mature enough to handle that gift on his or her own, then say 25 years of age or, or whatever age I want, I can set up the trust so that the trust will terminate and any property that's left can be distributed to the child at that time. Um, one other, uh, and so that's a, that's a pretty salutary use of trust that um, kind of the average person can understand and can relate to. Um, but for very wealthy donors, um, we do this just on a much larger scale. So um, a wealthy donor might put millions of dollars in a trust and have that trust be managed for the benefit of not only one or two beneficiaries, but uh, maybe for uh, the settler's children, uh, maybe for um, their entire lives, and then maybe to the next generation um, for their lives and on and on. So um, a trustee can actually manage uh, a trust uh, for, for many generations. And I think I remember when we when I was taking your class that the, the idea for me that made it so easy to understand was that the trustee gives the gift to the beneficiary who just isn't burdened with the, the management of, of that, that trust and that money and everything that's in there. That's right. So what, one of the things that we say with respect to um, a, a trust is we indulge this, uh, this, this device that we call a legal fiction. A legal fiction is a way of conceptualizing something that occurs in law that makes us, that helps us to understand uh, legal relationships better. So in, in trust law, the legal fiction is something that we call the title split or the bifurcation of title. So when the settler makes the gift, we say that the settler is transferring legal title to the trustee and is transferring beneficial title to the trust beneficiary or beneficiaries. Um, and the burdens that you referred to earlier, um, the burdens are taken on, on by the trustee. So the trustee has the obligation to invest the property, to pay taxes with respect to the property. Um, if it's real property that's improved, um, to make sure that that property is maintained and also to make distributions to or for the benefit of the beneficiary as 
the trust uh, instrument sets forth and as is also outlined in trust law. The beneficiary, on the other hand, gets all the benefit, gets all of the, the good things from the property, gets, gets the, the wealth essentially from the, from the property in either the form of distributions from the trust directly or the trust can make distributions um, to uh, other persons that might benefit the beneficiary. If the beneficiary is young, uh, it, it, the trust can pay bills for the beneficiary, et cetera. Um, the other thing that, um, that I think is really important to understand with respect to trust law is something that permeates all of trust and estates law. And that is this concept of uh, freedom of disposition. And this is really um, a value or a principle that, that, we, uh, that we say is the kind of the, the driving force behind this area of the law, which is the law of donative transfers or the law of gratuitous transfers of property. And what freedom of disposition means is that the donor can give property to whomever or um, uh, whomever he or she wants to give the property to. Um, and we call this disposing of the property. But in US trust law, um, it means much more than that. It's, it's come to mean that the donor has the power not only to give the property, to dispose of it, to certain beneficiaries or certain recipients, but actually to control it um, uh, long after the gift is made. And in fact, um, for the entire uh, uh, for the entire term of a trust, and trust now um, can last um, for many generations, or, or even in many cases indefinitely. So now that our listeners sort of have a, a general understanding of what the law of trust is, could you tell us a little bit about the research that you're currently working on? Certainly. Um, so um, I've mentioned freedom of disposition. And one of the things that, that I'd like to tell you about now is um, a, a couple of cases that occurred a, a long time ago. One was an English case. This case is a case called Saunders versus Vautier. And these, both of these cases have to do with freedom of disposition in a way. They both involve trust. And the facts under the cases are very similar to one another. In the English case, which, um, which came down in 1841, a trust had been created uh, whereby the trust property was held and, ma and managed for a, a, a one beneficiary, and the, um, the, the trust was supposed to uh, continue to be managed until that beneficiary reached the age of 21, uh, 25, rather. Um, but what happened was when the beneficiary became of age, when, when uh, the beneficiary reached legal capacity at 21, he demanded payment of the trust property. Um, even though the trust itself said that he wasn't supposed to get the property outright uh, until he reached 25, the court held that he could get the property. And they said the reason that he could get the property is because he was now essentially the current owner of the property. And the settler, although the settler wanted the property to uh, be held until he reached the age of 25, the settler no longer owned the property. It was, it was the beneficiary who now owned the property. So if we fast forward from that case to an American case called Claflin, um, that case was decided about 50 years later in 1889 um, under very similar facts. Um, there was a, a trust for a beneficiary that was uh, to be held in, and managed until he, he uh, reached the age, uh, I believe it was, it was 25 as, as well. Um, and this, this beneficiary also demanded payment at the age of 21. Um, but the American court 
uh, implicated the, uh, or, or, or brought up the doctrine of freedom of disposition to say that um, freedom of disposition, and this is freedom of, di of the disposition of the settlor, includes not only the right to dispose of the property, to put that property in trust, but the right to control the benefit and use of that trust, or of that property rather, for as long as the trust exists. And the important thing, uh, the important lesson from this case is that American trust law has essentially followed the Claflin case and other cases like Claflin. So since trust in many jurisdictions now last forever, we have a situation in the United States where donors can control trust and, and trust property forever under this principle of freedom of disposition. And so what I'm writing about in this paper has to do with um, trusts that, uh, that last for a long period of time and how those trusts respond, what, what law we've developed uh, for those trusts to respond to events that are unanticipated that arise after the, um, the trust has, has been in place for some time. So generally speaking, from what you were just explaining to, to our listeners, um, trust administration in the United States focuses on carrying out that intent of the settler. And is, it's, is it very difficult to, to, to make any modifications or changes once the settler has died? Would you, would you argue that this is an, an issue that is currently facing American trust law? Yeah, I think it is, and um, and and trust law's response to this issue has um, has evolved somewhat over the years. Um, and the issue arises at, because, at, at, as you said, um, you know, when you put something in trust for a long period of time, there's no way that any settler can foresee everything that might happen in the future. And this is particularly the case where trusts are created with the intent that they last for many generations and generations. And this starts really getting into the main thesis of my paper, which is how can a trust that uh, that lasts so long without any changes um, uh, be accommodated to respond to unanticipated events? And what are the responses under U.S. trust law to uh, to accommodate those trusts? And are they good or, or are they not so good? So I know from your class that one method to currently modify trusts is uh, the doc, the equitable deviation doctrine. Could you sort of explain what that doctrine is and maybe how it impacts the writing that you're currently doing? Sure. Equitable deviation is a process uh, by which an irrevocable trust, which is the type of trust we've been talking about, um, it's a process by which it can be modified by a court. Um, and this process can occur at any time during its existence. Um, in order for the process to, uh, to be instituted, there have to be two things present. The first thing is that there must be a circumstance arise that was not anticipated by the settler when the settler created the trust. And under the original equitable deviation doctrine, the second thing that must arise is that in light of this unanticipated circumstance, compliance with the trust terms would either defeat or substantially impair the purposes of the trust. Let me give you an example. There was a case in 1931 um, where the newspaper baron, Joseph Pulitzer, created a trust for his descendants. Um, and as you might imagine, um, this was a trust that um, was very valuable trust. He funded it with newspaper stock. 
And he provided in the trust that the stock could never be sold by the trustee because he thought that the stock would um, would provide benefits for his family for long long periods period of time to come. But what happened was after a number of years, the company began to suffer huge losses as the, the value of the newspaper stock declined. And it became clear that um, to not sell this, the newspaper stock and reinvest those proceeds in other stock um, was going to essentially result in the trust um, dwindling down to nothing. Um, so these were circumstances that weren't anticipated by Pulitzer when he, um, when he set up the trust. And it, it was apparent that compliance with the terms would defeat or substantially impair the purposes of the trust. So the trustee went to the court and asked the court to allow it to modify the trust so that the trustee could sell the newspaper stock, invest in other investments, and continue with the management of, of the trust property. And so because remember, one of the burdens that the trustee has with respect to uh, acting as a trustee under a trust is, is to manage the trust property in a way that will benefit the beneficiaries. Now, in my paper, I'm not critical of this original equitable deviation doctrine uh, in and of itself. Um, the key to this, this traditional doctrine is that not only must there be unanticipated circumstances, but those unanticipated circumstances must be such that they would defeat or substantially impair the purposes of the trust. Okay. So given that equitable deviation seems to focus on the intent of the settler and, and change circumstances that they didn't, ex didn't expect, would you say that this doctrine, as you described it, is problematic or helpful for the current issues facing, facing the law? Well, it can be helpful, um, but it can also create problems. Um, I think, in, 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 you know, really that um, trust should probably be more time-restricted. Um, that, that we should have a, a, a more um, a, a definite time where trust should have to terminate. But we're actually moving in a different direction. And anyway, that's, that's not really what the paper is about. Trusts do, however, now contain billions of dollars of assets that are held by wealthy families. And the trust owning class is so powerful that trust law is evolving to make it easier to hold property and trust for families in the most optimal way possible. And one thing to keep in mind is that um, when the law prioritizes the needs of certain um, persons with respect to property, um, that it is, is necessarily not uh, choosing not to protect the rights of other persons. So um, if it's going to evolve in a direction that is going to protect the rights of settlers and expand the rights of settlers, then there's a substantial chance that it is going to diminish the rights of perhaps beneficiaries or perhaps others who may be indirectly affected by the trust. Um, so to give you an example of that, um, most trusts have provisions in them called spendthrift provisions. Um, a spendthrift provision provides that a beneficiary's creditors cannot get access to the beneficiary's trust money under any circumstances um, so, for example, let's suppose that we have a trust beneficiary who commits an intentional tort, um, like assault and battery, and this, uh, this tort causes severe injury to someone um, who uh, 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 the, is, the, is the person who the 
um, the beneficiary assaulted. Um, so this injured person sues the trust beneficiary uh, and gets a judgment against him. If the beneficiary's trust has a spendthrift provision, the injured person's judgment can't be satisfied from the trust assets, even if the trust contains million, millions of dollars. So th this is justified on the basis of this expanded um, concept of freedom of disposition that the settler of the trust would prefer that the property of the trust not be available to satisfy creditors of the um, of, of the beneficiary. And so this brings me to a recent change in the equitable deviation doctrine, which is really um, what I focus on in my paper. Um, so the, the modified equitable deviation doctrine still requires that uh, a circumstance arise that was not anticipated by the settler, um, but whereas the traditional doctrine, uh, as you might recall, uh, provided that, that that unanticipated circumstance must defeat or substantially impair the purposes of the trust. Under the modified doctrine, um, it now must only provide that modification will further the purposes of the trust. So this seemingly minor change actually completely changes the circumstances under which trust can be modified because it actually asks the court to ask, not what the settler meant to do when the trust was created and does the trust still is the trust still able to do that but it asks rather what would the settler do if he could be resurrected and informed of all cur cir uh, current circumstances in other words what it allows is that the trust be reconfigured at any time that the trustee uh, thinks it's no longer optimal. So the question is, in light of the unanticipated circumstances, can the trust be made better? Um, and so it essentially al allows trusts that are no longer optimal to be modified. And, um, and so if the settler would make changes to the trust, then the court is directed to make these changes. So it kind of gives these settlers a, 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 almost an immortality by asking them, uh, by asking not what they intended at the time the trust was created, but what the settler would do in the event he or she had a new opportunity to create the trust in light of current circumstances. So it's kind of estate planning by proxy um, through the trustee and the courts. And, and listening to what you've just been discussing with us, the, the sort of tensions that exist between what the settler wants and the interests of beneficiaries or creditors and now this new sort of modification to the equitable deviation doctrine seems to be putting even more focus on the intent of the settler. What sort of problematic results do you think might occur from, from this new modified doctrine? Well, one of the things that can happen with trust is they can impinge upon the rights of other people. So one of the examples that I gave you um, was the spendthrift trust, um, the spendthrift trust provision. Um, and I, I tried to illustrate how um, by putting property in trust, we are taking, essentially taking rights away from those who might be um, involuntary creditors or victims of an intentional tort, for example, of a, of a beneficiary. Um, so let me try to give you a couple of examples um, that I use in my paper that I think kind of illustrate how this modified, uh, modified um, 
doctrine, this this uh, equitable deviation doctrine, um, has changed and how how it might respond differently to the same set of facts. So we had a couple of cases come up, one of which arose under the original equitable deviation doctrine, and another which arose under the new doctrine. And they both had similar facts, so I'm going to kind of combine those facts into one set of facts because uh, the details aren't aren't really that important. So we have a we have a trust settler who who puts property in trust for um, his family uh, at his death uh, through a what we call a testamentary trust that's created by his will, and he wants this property to benefit not only his children but also his grandchildren. And so what he does is he says that um, this this property shall be managed by the trustee for the life of my child and my child's spouse. And when the last to die of my child or my child's spouse dies, then the remaining trust property will be distributed to their children. Um, so, so this trust is created and under the first case, which was under the original equitable deviation doctrine, um, a, it turned out that one of the grandchildren who stood in line to receive the property at the death of the settler's children was, um, was disabled and was receiving uh, public benefits under uh, need-based public benefits. So, so these public benefits are only available to you um, if you don't have the resources to pay for things yourself. Um, they're paid for by, by taxpayer money. Um, so uh, the, the, the trustee and the, the current beneficiaries of the trust, when they realized that the, the children of the settler, this was at that level, when they realized that um, they now had a disabled person who was going to receive these trust benefits uh, at the death of the first generation, and that that would cause this disabled beneficiary to um, to no longer be eligible for these public um, need-based benefits, uh, they sought to have the trust modified under the equitable deviation doctrine. And so there's no question that these were unanticipated circumstances uh, that uh, on behalf of the settler, the settler had, had um, not anticipated that this might happen, so he didn't make provision for it. So that was satisfied. Um, and the other prong of the test, remember, is that um, these circumstances would have to be such that they would um, defeat or substantially impair the purposes of the trust. Um, in this first case, the court did not allow modification because it said, well, the purposes of the trust were to benefit these beneficiaries. And to the extent that this, this beneficiary, this ultimate beneficiary who gets the property at the death of the first generation can receive this trust property and use it to pay for benefits, that will benefit the beneficiary. So the second prong of the test is essentially not satisfied. Um, the second case arose under the modified equitable deviation doctrine. And under that modified doctrine, remember, we still have the first prong of the test being the same. Is there a circumstance that was unanticipated by the settler? We still have that. But under the modified equitable deviation doctrine. The second question is, will modification further the purposes of the trust? And in order to make this determination, 
we essentially ask, what would the settler do? So if we could bring the settler back and ask the settler, you know, given these new circumstances, if you were recreating the trust at this moment, would you recreate the trust any differently? Would you put any different provisions in this? And the court concluded that, yes, indeed, the settler would have structured the trust so that it could benefit that third generation in a way that wouldn't disqualify that third generation from, um, from the public benefits. And so it allowed the trustee to essentially modify the trust so that only uh, the trust would only pay for those things that the taxpayer-supported benefits wouldn't pay for, and the rest of the money could be available to the other trust beneficiaries. So um, I'm critical of this because uh, I say that it essentially allows the settler to be resurrected and to um, recreate a trust that was supposed to be irrevocable and that the, the, um, the fallout, the negative externalities, if you will, um, uh, 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 are on the taxpayer at large or the community at large because they're the ones who have to pay for, um, for the care of this trust beneficiary, even though that beneficiary um, is the beneficiary of a, of a trust which contains a great deal of assets that could be paying uh, for, the, for the care of the beneficiary. So having gone over these changes and, and the way that the two different doctrines sort of uh, can be applied, what do you think can be done to, to deal with these issues that you just described? Well, one of the things that I think that we could do is we could recede from this expansive concept of freedom of disposition that um, is not only the freedom to dispose of your property, but is the freedom to um, control your property long after it's been disposed of. And we could also um, take, uh, take into consideration the consequences of these develops these various developments in trust law more broadly. So if we're coming up with an equitable deviation doctrine, we should think about you know, how it affects not only um, the settler's freedom of disposition, but how it affects the rights of other parties. So rather than asking just what a settler wants, for example, we, we should start asking what's in the best interest of everyone affected, um, even those who are not parties to the trust and um, are, but are affected by its operation. Another way that we could do it is we could beef up the federal transfer taxes, and that's the estate gift and generations gifting taxes, so that these trusts pay a tax penalty under certain circumstances when they are amended um, under equitable deviation. So the, the federal transfer taxes, that is to say the, the estate and gift taxes, um, exist uh, in large part um, to decrease the incidence of of wealth uh, that's dynastic wealth. So wealth that's locked into single family possession and passed on from generation to generation over a, a long period of time. And so in my paper, one, one of the things I do is I apply the federal estate and gift taxes to a number of hypothetical fact patterns involving equitable deviation, some of which are based on actual cases and conclude that those taxes as currently constructed, probably falls short of acting as a deterrent to the modification of these trusts under equitable deviation. 
And one of the things I suggest is that so long as uh, state trust law is going to evolve to give settlers uh, and their kind of imagined zombie successors immortal powers to modify trust, then the transfer tax law should also evolve to deter these actions because state law changes in, in trust law is kind of outrunning any changes in federal transfer tax law. So for example, amendments made to irrevocable trust pursuant to uh, equitable deviations should subject the trust corpus to a tax. And one approach could be an expansion of these taxes to impose a tax on the corpus of the trust, on the, on the property that's in the trust, each time it's altered or amended after the death of the sedent, whether by law, such as in one of these um, uh, uh, equitable deviation circumstances, or by its terms, unless the amendment involves a termination of the trust where we no longer have the problem. Um, as an additional or perhaps alternative amendment, we could simply apply a periodic uh, federal transfer tax uh, to any trust that continues to exist in any form beyond a certain maximum number of years past the original transfer. These are really interesting concepts, Professor. And do you think there are any other trends or, or issues or, or challenges that you feel the, the law of estate planning is currently facing? Well, trust in estates law continues to evolve. Um, I think that probably, and, and I don't have anything, uh, I haven't done anything to prove this, but I actually think that we probably have had uh, more activity in the involvement of trust law in the past couple, de de couple decades than we've had in any other area of trust and estates law. Um, and, uh, and, and trusts are, uh, just in the time that, that I've been teaching law as opposed to practicing it, um, we've had a number of new developments in trust law that make trusts a lot more useful um, to those who uh, to those who have the, the wherewithal to, to use trust, particularly trusts that um, have lots of assets in them. Um, and in, for example, I, I mentioned it only in passing in my paper, but there are lots of other ways that irrevocable trust can be modified, including a doctrine called trust decanting. Um, and by using um, these uh, trust uh, participants called trust protectors or trust directors. And these methods can be criticized for a lot of the same reasons that I raise in my paper about equitable deviation. Although I mention these techniques in my paper, like I said, I don't go into any detail, but I do think that some of the prescriptions that I kind of broadly propose would be equally applicable to, to some of those methods as well. And Professor, thank you so much for giving, uh, guess, giving us this information because it really is an interesting area of the law that um, I think a lot of students become very interested in when they when they sit down to take the class and learn about what what happens because so many so many people have to sit down and either write a will or you know deal with these things in, in their everyday lives. So before we wrap things up, do you have any other upcoming projects that you can maybe give our listeners a sneak peek about or anything like that? Yeah, so um, I think what I'm going to do with my next project is sound a similar theme, but take a broader and more philosophical look at um, whether it's a good idea generally to have an entire area of the law that's solely organized around a concept such as freedom of disposition. Um, freedom of disposition is what we can call a deontological concept, and deontology proceeds on the basis that the morality of an action uh, should be based on whether that action itself is right or wrong. Is that action itself ethical? 
um, rather than on the consequences of the action. But the problem is if we never consider the consequences of an action and we continue to develop law only based around the fact that you know, we have this tenet that we think is an ethical tenet, um, that, um, then, then that, that moral right or that ethical right continues to expand without regard to whatever incidental harm that it might cause. And I think that's to some extent what's happened here. So I'm gonna suggest, I think more generally that this moral right that we call freedom of disposition would do well to be balanced in favor of consequentialism, which holds that the consequences of a person's conduct should be the basis for how we judge the morality of that conduct. So in other words, rather than just asking whether a law or legal outcome in this area promotes freedom of disposition, um, we should be asking whether the consequences of the law promote the well-being of society as a whole. And that sounds like a really interesting concept that I'm sure that our uh, listeners might be interested in. Hopefully, when the time comes, we can have you come back on the podcast and, and talk a little bit about that. And if, if one of our listeners was interested in contacting you to discuss this paper, um, maybe other academic writing that you've done, or the, the law of estate planning in general, how could they possibly reach out to you? Well, I'm not much on social media, um, but uh, all of my contact information is on the faculty section of the New England Law website. So uh, my telephone number is there, my email address is there. That's the best way to reach me. And I certainly welcome uh, any comments or questions from, from anyone in the community. I, I really like to talk about this stuff. Professor, Professor Shankel, thank you so much. Uh, you took time out of a very busy schedule to sit down and, and talk with the podcast. And as I, as I mentioned, we hope to have you back soon. And knowing that you have additional research coming up, we'll be sure to uh, be back in touch with that. And I would say to any of our listeners, if you are at all interested in coming onto this podcast or you have suggestions for us about future guests, um, please feel free to reach out. You can do that by emailing forum at nesl.edu. That's forum, F-O-R-U-M, at nesl.edu. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.